Another Way to Play, episode 81. People, generally speaking, don't know what power is. They don't know how to use it in a way that actually brings growth and productivity and health. The job of leadership is to inspire collaboration, to increase your influence with people. This is Andy Wallace, and if you want to learn to make the next chapter of your life better than the last, you should be listening to Another Way to Play with our good friend, Hans Struzina. Welcome to Another Way to Play, your wake-up call to finally make a difference by creating a life defined by freedom. This is about entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and industry professionals that have left the 9-to-5 rat race behind by taking that personal leap from where they were to where they want to be. It's time to stop going through the motions, stop hitting the snooze button on your life, and get the insight and inspiration to make the next chapter of your life better than your last. This is Another Way to Play with your host, Hans Struzina. This is Another Way to Play. I am your host, Hans Struzina, and I believe that if you trade hours for dollars, you will never achieve true freedom in your life. Today's guest is Andy Wallace. Andy is a speaker and coach who talks very specifically about power, not only power in some of the traditional senses, but also looking at the very dark side of power. He has interviewed over 250 perpetrators of power-based crimes and has worked with the victims to put the pieces of their lives back together. Through that, he has recognized that the same power that those perpetrators and victims experience is very similar in many ways to what a lot of people experience in a professional environment, though the way that it is experienced is obviously quite different. That is what he talks about. That's what he's going to share with us today on the show, and we're going to take a deep dive into that power dynamic, what it means, when it's healthy, when it's unhealthy, and how you can use it to your benefit as a leader, both in your work and in your family life. With that, if you get value out of this, which I'm sure that you will, it's a very interesting conversation, please head over to iTunes, leave me a rating and review, tell me what you liked on the show. That really helps me gain critical feedback so I can learn how to keep improving, keep growing, and and just keep getting better in general. So thank you in advance for that. And without any further ado, let's go ahead and bring in our guest today, Andy Wallace. Andy, thank you so much for being on the show, man. Really appreciate you taking some time with us. I'm happy to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, pretty unprecedented times. You've got a lot going on. Obviously, we're recording this in the middle of the COVID thing. You know, before we get into all of that, what you're doing and, and how you're handling this, let's back up and let's build some context for the audience. Let's talk about where your journey actually began. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was about 22 years old, I was a lead pastor of a small congregation uh, faith community in a rural America. And I got a call. I was just trying to lead people well. I was trying to make a difference in people's lives. I was trying to give people practical guidance for their lives. And I got a call from a woman in our church. Her and her husband, well-respected and well-known in the community. And she's crying on the phone. I couldn't understand what she was saying. I kept trying to get clarification, but she was just crying so heavily and she's saying, pastor, I need you to come over. I, I need help. I, I just can't do this. I need you to come over right away. I said, okay, I'll be there in a few minutes. I hung up the phone. I called my wife. Uh, I, I said, Kristen, you've, you've, I, I need your help. We've got to go visit uh, Mrs. So-and-so. So I went over there and I got her and we got in the car and we drove 
to this woman's house. And when I walked in the door, she was sitting on the couch crying. Her head was down in her hands. And when she looked up, I realized what was going on. She was covered in bruises and she had pictures on her phone that she began to show me from years of abuse by her husband. And I realized at that moment that I had no idea what I was doing, that I was not prepared for this. I had no idea that I knew that things like that happened on the fringes. I I assumed on the fringes of society, but I didn't realize that I was going to face this from a core family in my congregation, in this community that I was trying to provide leadership for. And honestly, in retrospect, it may be that that's what saved me in that moment. One of the best lessons I could have learned was I, I knew that I didn't know what to do. Over the years, I've seen a lot of leaders who thought they knew what to do and ended up making situations worse and not helping people. But I realized in that moment, hey, I don't know what's happening here. I have no idea what to do. And so I set out on a journey. And over the next couple of years, Hans, I, 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 I preached multiple funerals for children. I helped people through situations I, I never could have imagined. We had I had two people in just a couple of years span that I actively talked down from suicide. One woman with the pills in her hand. I helped people go through the betrayal of, of a spouse and try to figure out how to pick up the pieces of broken relationships. I helped a family try to rescue their son from severe drug addiction. And in the middle of all that, I went through my own, nearly lost my own battle with major chronic depression and anxiety. And I'll tell you this, when you go through experiences like that, if you let them, those experiences humble you and they change the way you see the world. They change the way you approach people. They change the way you lead. And so over the course of the last decade now, I've just come to approach leadership through this vein of people need real answers and try answers. Don't get anybody anywhere. People need real answers to real problems. And that's what makes a difference. Man, that's incredibly powerful and uh, can imagine that that first experience that you just described had a hugely transformative impact on you because there's a lot of ways that one could respond in that. And, and as you said, you didn't know what was the right way to respond. So you dug in and took it as an opportunity to, to presumably learn more and get better from there. Like many people would run away from that situation. So why do you think that you leaned into it in that moment? You know, I I felt like leadership was a responsibility to do that for sure. Um, I mean, when you're sitting there faced with somebody who needs help, you you do what you can. I'm not painting a picture that I, that I, I look back on that now. And if I knew then what I know now, I think I would have done so much better. And I don't say that out of a way of having regrets, but I don't think I provided that family with everything that I could have or maybe should have. But it did set me on a journey to figure out how to help people. I found that one in four women experienced domestic violence. That's regardless of their social status, their demographics, their, their socioeconomic status. So I got involved with social services, eventually transitioned into social services and worked with hundreds of families going through similar things. Seeing that need, seeing a need that was unmet and figuring out, hey, I've got to have a practical way to address this. I think that defines, to some extent, responsible leadership. It's recognizing here's a need and entrepreneurship for that matter. And Mm -hmm. making a difference in the world is seeing a need that's not being met or that's not being met in a healthy way where people are are suffering or people are not experiencing life the way they could experience life and saying, hey, I'm going to find answers for that. I'm going to find a way to make a difference in these people's lives. 
Yeah, that bridge you just built is fantastic. And I think it's a really important distinction. You have since then transitioned into some of the coaching and the teaching and the speaking. Talk to us how you started in, so you're in ministry, then you're in the social services, and then where does that next version of yourself come into play? Yeah, so I'm doing a lot of counseling with people, whether it was in in the ministry setting, spiritual setting, or whether it was in the social service setting, a lot of it became economic, right? There were a lot of economic pressures and people who are struggling, they need economic freedom becomes a really key component. And so I was doing a lot of that. I began working with a nonprofit doing financial coaching. I got involved in, in banking through that. It's a whole long, weird, weird path, but I got involved in corporate management and realized that I was seeing the same mindsets. I, I interviewed during my social service work, and I still do advocacy work for domestic violence today Mm -hmm. on a volunteer basis. But while I was working in social services, I interviewed over 250 perpetrators of domestic violence, which is a power-based crime, right? It's based Mm -hmm. on the idea that there's one partner in a relationship. Most of the time, it's the male. There are female perpetrators, but the vast majority of the time, they're male perpetrators. And that one partner is trying to control the other partner. That's what violence in a family situation is about. It's about one partner trying to control the other partner. It's a power and control crime. And I realized that the same mindsets that these perpetrators had about power, about how to use power, about how to influence their situation, about how to, uh, even this idea, of course, especially in rural America and in certain religious settings, there's this idea that the man should be the leader. And culturally, you see that still is powerful, mm-hmm. especially in certain parts of the country. And this idea about what leadership was and what power should look like and how you should relate to people. I began to realize that that same mindset that they had that justified, rationalized in their minds, the kind of violent actions they took, those same mindsets were present in corporate America. You won't normally see a manager go to the same links that you will see a violent perpetrator go to. But the same mindsets, the same ideas about what power is, and how it should be used are present. People, generally speaking, don't know what power is. They don't know how to use it in a way that actually brings growth and productivity and health. Wow. Building that link between the two, that's that's incredible. So, I mean, most of the time, I think people would draw a pretty serious distinction from a violence-based power crime or power-based violence crime, however you would refer to it. And, you know, a manager who's just a jerk, right? But what you're saying is they're often the same from a core basis, but then the way that they come out in the world is what's very different. They're absolutely connected. There are a lot of different types of power. So if we back up just a second and and realize that power comes from the Latin word posse, which means to be able Right. So it has the idea of there is an ability. There's an ability to make something happen. Right. It's the same root word we get for the word possibility. Power is the ability to to have ability to create something, to create some possibility. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are a lot of different forms of power. There are most obvious types of power. And in most power based crimes, what most people think of as domestic violence, it's physical power. Right. Somebody is using physical power to overcome someone else, right? To hurt them in some way. Most of the time in a domestic violence relationship, in a power-based relationship, there are a lot of other behaviors that are happening that most people wouldn't identify as domestic violence, but they are. They're power and control behaviors. 
So you have physical power. You have, of course, money can be power. Having money gives me ability that some of the people may not have. I have the ability to accomplish things that somebody with less financial resources can. Um, education can be power, right? Knowledge is power. I think, I think that's pretty cliche, but we understand what mm-hmm. that means. Mm-hmm. You've got cultural power, right? We sometimes hear it referred to as privilege, but this mm-hmm. is a real thing where because of my status in society, because of the color of my skin, because of my gender, I may have more power than someone else who doesn't have those same advantages just because societally how things are set up, systemic power. There's a lot of different kinds of power, right? One of the weakest forms of power is positional power. Weakest in that positional power it's more difficult to create lasting change with positional power than lots of other types of power. It has to be mm-hmm. handled very carefully, right? So while you have a domestic violence vendor who has physical power and they're going to use that to get what they want, you have a boss, a manager who has positional power. Neither of them know how to use it, right? Mm-hmm. Neither of them are using it well. They're not using it with the right ideas in mind. They're using it to control people. And that's what it boils down to. I have to tell managers everywhere I go, every company I speak to, if you're a leader, if you're a manager, stop trying to control people. Stop. That's it. I mean, it's as easy as that. You've got to stop trying to control other people. That's not the job of leadership. The job Mm -hmm. of leadership is not to control the people that you follow. The job of leadership is to inspire collaboration, to increase your influence with people. A leader in an unhealthy or antagonistic context a leader is trying to increase their leverage, increase their power with the intent of controlling people. In a healthy or what I like to call a mutualistic relationship or context, the leader is trying to increase their influence with people with the intent of collaborating with them. And that's a key distinction. And no matter whether you're talking about a family violence situation or a workplace situation, the same principles are at play. Thank you for drawing that distinction because I, you're right. Like when I think about my own experiences, whether it's coaches when I was in athletics or bosses or team leaders or just people who were considered coworkers, that sort of pecking order, that power dynamic, especially for someone like myself who came from an athletic background, it was always at play. We were always trying to kind of one up and we couldn't physically beat on each other, but we were, you know, we were always trying to one up in one way or another and get ahead in the world. And there were healthy ways and productive ways for the team and for the success of the team at the end. And there were obviously the ones that weren't. As we listen to this and as we sort of consider what that means in our own lives, I'm struck by the next question, which is, you know, how can someone go about identifying more clearly those dynamics of power that are in play in their world and then how to sort of move them in the direction of positive as opposed to the negative? Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that. Before I say anything else, I want to say I'm fascinated. I would love, and maybe we can follow up at some point to hear you talk more about that dynamic because, you know, at that elite level, I would love to hear what the dynamics, the team dynamics are. I think that would be fascinating. And it's important to recognize that there are some situations in which an antagonistic context is appropriate, right? Mm -hmm. Power can be used to control. There's a time where you need that in society, right? Mm -hmm. There are situations in which by definition, the relationship that we have may be antagonistic of necessity. There's a place and a context, not the family, not the workplace, but there are settings where that's appropriate. 
Go ahead. I mean, to draw, just to draw that in a little bit more, the practical here, like I said, at the beginning, we're recording this in the middle of the COVID world. It's April 3rd currently. California was one of the first states to have counties that go stay at home order. And then many other states in the country are moving or have moved in that direction. We have been ordered to stay at home for fear of a fine of some kind or potentially being put in jail, depending on the county and the state you're in. But that's an example of and correct me if I'm wrong here, but that sounds like an example of power being exercised antagonistically for you know the betterment of society. And there's there's probably a reason for that, as opposed to, I don't I, I guess I don't know in a, another example in our current incarnation, but that's one that rings true of exercise of power in yeah. that way. Yeah, and you're getting you're getting into a really deep area. And the truth is, there are certain times where that line, where, where it takes a lot of discernment to know what kind of situation am I in? What am I trying to accomplish right now? I don't think law enforcement have to walk that line every day, right? It's funny <laughs> that if you see on the back of a, of, a, of a lot of police vehicles, at least around here, and I assume this is something that's the case nationally, their motto is to protect and serve, mm-hmm. right? Those are both very specific words that indicate an empowerment model, right? Those are not antagonistic, but we all know that there are times when you know, a law enforcement officer may have to use power in a way that doesn't feel like protect and serve at all. Right. (laughs) I mean, it is, but it's going to be expressed very differently Mm -hmm. uh, depending on the context. Now in general, and I want to get back to your question here because uh, you know, we do want this to be really practical. So we talk about how do I know if I'm in a context where people are using power? Well, if I'm in a manager, how do I know if I'm using power? Well, there's basically five areas that you have to provide to people in order to use power well. If I have positional power, I want to use my power to create amps for where other people are empowered, right? To thrive, to do better. I want this to go well. There are five areas and there's at the center. Let me visualize it this way. If you can imagine a target, mm-hmm. right? So just a circular target. And at the very middle where the bullseye is, the bullseye represents mission, purpose, and identity. This will ring true if you're talking about a family's mission, purpose, and identity, or a company, or anything else. What is it that brings us together? Mm-hmm. Right? If we're talking about my workplace, why did we all get hired? What's the mission? What are we trying to accomplish? Why are we all here together in this same building? What's the mission? Not the product, not the service necessarily, but what are we actually trying to accomplish in our community or in the world? And then what's the purpose? Why are we trying to accomplish that? And then the identity is, what are our values? Who, what do we want to be known for as we go about that? So that's the bullseye. That's what I want. Every decision I make as a leader, when I use my positional power, I want it to serve the mission, purpose, and identity because that's why we're all here. Mm-hmm. Now, if you can imagine from that bullseye in the surrounding sections, all right, if you, if you ever had a dartboard as a kid, those surrounding right. sections, there's five surrounding sections, and these are where everything comes together. And they're pretty simple. The first one is safety, physical and psychological safety. If you work at a place or if you're a manager at a place where people feel unsafe, you're not going to get good results. You're not going to have a healthy relationship. People are not going to be empowered. It's amazing to me. You would like to think that nobody gets yelled at at work, but people do. People yell at people at work. It's, it's not a safe situation to have somebody in your personal space. If I get up in your face, I've just created an unsafe dynamic and it's not going to, in a workplace environment, it's not going to be appropriate and it's not going to help 
us accomplish the mission, purpose, and identity that we're there to. Harassment is another example. Any type of sexual harassment or other types of harassment, if that's happening at work, it's creating an unsafe environment, and it's a misuse of power. Of course, it's a classic misuse of power. We just saw a wonderful film, Bombshell. I don't know if you've seen it yet. It's about the Roger Ailes thing with Fox News. It's, a, I think, an incredible example, regardless of the politics and all that behind it. I'm not talking about any of that, but it's an incredible example of just how someone can use positional power improperly. So you create an unsafe atmosphere. You've got to create safety. Even things that some managers may do, they may not consider being unsafe, like ambushing people with questions they're not ready for. If mm-hmm. I'm at my desk and every time my boss walks in the room, I get nervous, I get anxious, that doesn't help. I'll give you an example that I think a lot of people will disagree with me on. Is that okay? <laughs> Please. Especially here in Alabama. If you've ever watched Nick Saban coach – Nick Saban is the head football coach at the University of Alabama. Of course, he's a powerhouse. Alabama is a powerhouse in the college football. But if you ever watch him, you can see that he has such a high intensity level. He's good at a lot of things. But if you look at his intensity level with his players, I know they appreciate it. I know they speak well of him. But you can see there are certain players that don't handle that well. He makes them feel unsafe. You can see it. I've watched it play out over the course of last season where players just did not feel safe around him. You had other coaches protecting players from him, right? And that's mm-hmm. a weakness. If you make people feel unsafe, you're, you're going to have problems. I'll go through the other ones really quickly because I know I'm taking way too long. The second one is trust. You need to have trust. Positional power creates trust. You've got to have mutual accountability. All right. Accountability gets a lot of press. People love managers, especially sales managers, love to talk about accountability. We're going to have accountability around this new thing. Not many people like to talk about mutual accountability. Mutual Mm -hmm. accountability, meaning accountability is not just one way. Right. right? In most organizations, you've got the pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid, this leader keeps the one underneath them accountable. This leader keeps the one underneath them accountable. And it goes all the way down like that. But in a healthy use of power, the person with power says, hey, I'm going to give the people below me in the hierarchy. I'm going to give them the power to hold me accountable. That's a healthy use of power. In other words, accountable to what? Accountable to the mission, the purpose, the identity of the organization. I expect and I proactively provide opportunities for the people who are my direct reports. They have the responsibility and I proactively give them the opportunity to hold me accountable. Right. I don't just get to do whatever I want. That's not a healthy use of power. And Mm -hmm. so mutual accountability means it goes both ways. And all of a sudden now you've got a healthy use of power. Agency is the fourth one. Um, Agency meaning give people as much autonomy as you possibly can without hurting them or the organization. It's that simple. Give people as much self-determination as you possibly can give them. And uh, of course, there's some gray area in that. Then the last one is positive incentive. You have to give incentive. Positive incentive in a workplace environment means competitive pay, you know, bonus structures, acknowledgement, awards, chances for self-development, and, and things like that. So you have to have positive incentive. What's interesting about that circle, uh, the target analogy visual that you just gave us, is the missions at the middle, the direction we're going is at the middle. And then from there, you, you span outwards with, you know, some very basic human needs like personal safety and the psychological safety. But then beyond that, you get out to letting people do their jobs and have accountability both up and down. And then it's compensation. 
then it's monetary, right? Like most of us start to think about, which is interesting, how much you made last year, how much your job offers for, but what you're talking about, that puts it out almost on the, on the very perimeter. And then the core things of mission and personal safety and autonomy and those sorts of things really reside at the middle of it where the money is pretty much on the outside. Let me clarify. So I think it's really interesting conversation and I would be open to some feedback on this, but I think, let me clarify the visual. If you've got the mission at the middle, right? Yep. And then around the middle, right? That inner circle where the big points are, each of these five goes around that middle, ah. that bullseye, right? And the reason I say that is I, I hear that quite a bit from managers. I've read a lot of articles. It's really popular right now to say, well, millennials don't care as much about money as they do about purpose. And I think that's a misnomer, mm-hmm. although there may be some truth in it. So I'll clarify a couple of things. I think money does matter. I think competitive compensation does matter. Mm-hmm. But I think it's more than that. I think it's aligning your incentive, whatever incentive you can come up with, however you incentivize your people to come into work. Nobody comes to work unless you pay them. Right. Let's get that clear, right? But then beyond that, there are other types of incentive that matter as well. So to your point, I think you're right about this. Money is not the be all end all. There are other Mm -hmm. types of incentive. If you can imagine, so you've got those five elements that surround the center bullseye. As you move out, there's, there's a next outer ring that represents where I believe most companies function. They're not all the way out of the edge. They're not missing way, way out here. They're kind of in that middle section. It's not great, but it's functioning, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of incentive, for instance, which is where you want to be, you want positive incentive, they've got misaligned incentives. I'll give you a specific practical example. Not too long ago, the bank that I work for changed their incentive structure They changed some roles around and we had spent a long time getting it to where the team that I was leading was getting incentive every single month. Every single month we were knocking our goals out of the park. We were focusing on one particular aspect of our business and that was where we were incentivized to focus, right? Our company said, here's what we care about. Here's where we can provide the most value to our community. Go get them. And we went and got them and we were successful. And then Mm -hmm they made a change. They said, Oh, well, you know what? We, we want to pursue another area of the market, another demographic of the market. So we want you to go after this particular niche, mm-hmm. but they didn't change the incentive structure. So they were pushing behaviors that didn't agree with the incentives they were providing. Right. Okay. And so you had this misaligned incentive, not nothing horrible happening there, but if you're in power, you've got to make sure that whatever we're incentivizing is aligned with what we're encouraging behavior-wise and activity-wise. Of course, you've got a negative incentive or no incentive. Out on the very edge, you've got no incentive mm-hmm. or negative incentive. If you've got trust in that inner circle, that place where you want to be, if you go out to the next layer out, that next outer circle, that, that middle layer, you've got pragmatic dependence. That's where a lot of companies function. They have to have a certain level of trust. In other words, just a function, I have to be able, you have to do your job and I have to do my job, but it's not implicit trust. It's not, I trust that you want what's best for me and I want what's best for you. It's this, we have to kind of depend on each other because we're in the same boat. Right. And then on the very outer level of that, you have fear, right? And that's, that's way out on the edge where people are actually afraid of the people they work with because they're going to stab them in their back or they're afraid of their boss because they know their boss doesn't have their best interests in mind, et cetera, et cetera. The same as you keep going around that thing, you've got safety. Safety is where you want to be. The next outer ring where most companies function is policy, 
right? Most positional yep. leaders give their people policy, which means we have an HR number you can call if you feel unsafe, right? right? But that doesn't mean I actually feel safe with the people that are standing next to me. And then, of course, on the edge, you have danger. Yep. So you go yeah. on around the wheel and it all comes Slice of that pie sort of fans out relative to the layer that you're operating in. Yeah, I hear you. So how does somebody, whether they're starting their own venture or they're identifying this kind of power dynamic in their environment, whether it's home or the job that they have currently, and they want to start thinking about this or operating closer to the center of your analogy, like how does someone go about taking some of the first steps and and identifying that and then making a change with it? Yeah. The very first thing is you've got to explore your own understanding of power, right? You need to explore yourself. Every leader needs to spend a significant amount of time thinking more about themselves and less about the people. Because when you're trying to control people, you spend a lot of time thinking about those people. If you think about it, if I'm the manager, I think about how do I get them to do what I want? So I sit there and think about what are their motivations and what are they afraid of and what do I have to do to get them motivated? And what I, and I think a lot about how do I get people to do what I want to do? But if we change the mindset, we go back to a place where we say, okay, how do I figure out who I am first? How do I grow? How do I become a better person? How do I become more productive, more efficient? How do I make a better impact on the world? And that comes from childhood. Um, mm-hmm. I was sitting in an interview room with a domestic violence perpetrator. It's not like CSI. It wasn't a big room with a mirror on the edge. It was like a walk-in closet with a little table in it and a camera in the corner. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting across from this guy. I've got a file in my hand and he's sitting there and I'm asking, hey, how did you get arrested? And he said, I don't know. And I said, okay, you must have some idea. Like you just randomly ended up arrested. He said, well, somebody called the police on me. I said, okay, but why did they call the police? I said, who called the police? He said, well, the neighbors called the police. The neighbors called. Them. I said, what was, what was happening? He said, well, me and my wife were arguing, and they called the police. I said, you were arguing. That's why you got arrested. He said, yeah. I said, okay, were you really loud? Were you like yelling at her and screaming and stuff? He said, no, no, no. He said, I don't yell. I don't have to yell. I said, okay. Well, well how did they hear to call the police? Where, is it like a duplex? Like they live right up next to you? He said, no, no, no. They They live at the house next door. It's like a hundred yards to the right. I said, you weren't yelling and screaming. How did they, how did they hear and know to call the police? He said, I don't know. I guess they heard the shots. And I said, well, that's possible. And he saw the shock on my face. He said, well, I didn't shoot at her. He said, I just shot into the floor to get her attention. And I said, uh, okay help me understand why you felt like she had to pay. She said, well, she just wouldn't listen to me, Andy. She, he said, you're, you're a preacher, you know, doesn't the Bible say the, the man is the head and the wife is the tail? I said, no, it doesn't say that, John. I, I don't know where you read that, but I, I've been, I went to wow. seminary and I never read that. Now here's my point. We have this long conversation. Here's a man in his, in his early sixties, that whole conversation. If you think back about that story, the different ways that his his view of the world, his mindset about how this relationship should work. And I began to try to understand. And as I began to ask him about his childhood, I said, where did that idea come from that the husband is the head, the wife is the tail? Where did that idea come from that if you want to get somebody's attention, you use a show of physical force? And I found out that when he was a child, when he was nine years old, he was in a bedroom in a closet with his younger brother while his parents argued, his father threw his mother through their end table 
dragged them outside into an abandoned vehicle in the yard, trying to scare their mother, put the two young children in the car and set the grass on fire around the vehicle. Jeez. This was his understanding of power and how it should be used. And it scared the bejesus out of his mother and his father got what he wanted. And that was his understanding of how power should be used to get what you want. Now, that's an extreme example of the way we all learn to understand how power dynamics and how relationships are supposed to work. It's really important for every leader, every manager, if you're starting a company, if you're trying to figure out how to manage people better, you've got to look at your life. You've got to look at your family history. How did my parents use power? How did they empower me? How did they treat the people around them? How does that carry it into my life? investigate things like what's my personality type? The Enneagram is a great tool for this. You've got to start with you and figure mm-hmm. out who am I as a leader? What, what are my mindsets? Where are my prejudices around this? Andy, this has been really awesome, man. I, I want to point out for the sake of the audience, like every single person who has been on this podcast, who has had a high level of success, whether it's personally in business, in a relationship, in sport, has known themselves first. And what you're talking about with all of the analogies and the stories you've given is identifying who you are first before you can go out and start the company, control the environment, set the incentives for the other people and get what you want out of it. Knowing yourself first is so, so critical. So thank you for bringing that message and for bringing all the rest of the commentary today because this has been really fascinating. I do want to honor the rest of your time here because I know you've given us a lot of it. So I am going to shift us over to the focus five, which is the same five questions I ask every guest on every show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. First question is what book have you gifted most often? What book have I gifted most often? Well, let's see. I don't gift books as much as I should, but I'm going to recommend anything by Brene Brown. For a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, I think we need to hear more women's voices in leadership. And number two, because whether you agree with everything she says or not, she is having a huge and outsized impact on the workforce, the upcoming workforce. So if you want to understand how people are thinking about leadership and about life in general, Brene Brown, you, you got to be paying attention. She has broken out of the business and academic worlds at this point. She's, she's mainstream. Like she's on Netflix for crying out loud. When was the last time? you know, move over John Maxwell. He's never, you know, Zig Ziglar never got on Netflix. I'm, okay. So Netflix wasn't around, but you see my point. Like, <laughs> yeah, she, no, I'm she, with you. Everybody is getting that kind of content. So we need to be understanding, you know, what, how that shift, she's making a huge impact. And I think that's worthwhile. Simon Sinek is probably, I've gifted his book several times, a couple of different uh, ones of his books. Both of those, by the way, both of those writers, Sinek and Brown, they're less about the mechanics of leadership and more about the mindset and philosophies of leadership. And I think that's really important. If you could get an hour of somebody's time, past or present, live or dead, and ask as many questions as you wanted, who would that person be and why? Uh, my granddad, my dad's dad, for the reason that I said before, that I think understanding yourself means understanding your family tree and, and knowing things that we just don't get a lot of. And so I would want to interview somebody from my family history. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. How do you start your day? I like to call this the liturgy of life. Those things that you do every day, they seem like small things, but they ground you. And especially during a time, I know we've talked a little bit about the fact that we're in the middle of this COVID-19 thing, but some people are working from home for the first time ever. Some people are trying to figure out what that's supposed to look like. They're thinking, oh, I don't have to get up for work in the morning, so I'll just sleep in. 
and, you know, do whatever. But I think those morning routines are so important to having productivity in your life. So yes, it's the basic stuff that most people do. I'm not an early riser. I know there's a lot of business guys out there that are going to say things like, oh, I'm up at five every morning and I go work out for, for an hour. You're an athlete. I'm sure that's probably what you do. I don't do that. I can't do that. Um, so, but I do have my morning routine where I get up, I spend some time with my kids first thing in the morning, and then I take my shower. I, I used to never eat breakfast, Hans, but my wife finally got me to start having a protein shake in the morning. So I'm finally doing that. <laughs> Fantastic. We got those things that ground you. Andy, this has been great. Thank you so much for all the value you've brought today. What is the number one place that we can connect with you online? I am on andywallaceconsulting.com. You can see more about me right there. You can reach out to me there. You can find me on Facebook, of course, at Andy Wallace Consulting, Instagram, Andy Wallace Consulting as well. I love to chat with anybody. Well, I will drop all of that down in the show notes, guys. So thank you, Andy, for being such a great guest today, for sharing all that knowledge about leadership and power and all the things that we got into. Definitely unique conversation. I'm really glad we had it and got to connect over it. Super happy to be with you. Really appreciate it. And that's it for today. If you guys want to connect with Andy personally, I've got his URL, andywallaceconsulting.com, as well as his Facebook profile linked up down in the show notes so you can connect with him personally. And if you want to connect with me one-on-one, I've got my Calendly link down at the very bottom. So it's easy to find. You can connect, get on my schedule. We can have a quick chat, get to know each other. And hopefully I can learn a little bit more about you, how to provide more value and how to make this show even better. So thanks to all of you who've done that so far. Looking forward to connecting with a few more of you in the near future. And uh, that's it for today. So I'm going to sign it off. This is Hans Strazina, host of Another Way to Play. And remember to make every chapter better than the last. Thanks for joining in for this episode of Another Way to Play, making the next chapter of your life better than your last. For more insights and inspiration to help you make that personal leap, be sure to engage with Hans on social media and get your questions answered right here on the show. Reach out to Hans at Chief SNAH on Instagram and we'll catch you on the next episode of Another Way to Play.